very recently came to the realization that we could die any second. I have a long list of incomplete things. I don't want this to be one of them. Hi, I am Adya and I welcome you to the 10th episode of Paired Out by Frederick Parkman to my podcast, What Saves Me From Drowning. We will see the chapters as they go 26 and 27 here. And let's just finish this in a couple of days because let's just please. 26. Peter is sitting on a bench in the junior's empty locker room. One of the posters with a quote meant to inspire has fallen to the floor. It's crumpled and marked with footprints. Peter reads it over and over again. He can remember when Sune pinned it up. Peter had only just learned to read. He had been a child heading straight into darkness when hockey found him. Sune dragged him to the surface and this team kept him afloat. With a mum who died when he was in primary school and a dad who was always tethering on the brink between happy, drunk and cruel alcoholic, when Peter as a little boy found something to cling on to, he held on until his knuckles turned white. Sune was always there, through the wins and the losses, in Beartown and on the other side of the world. When the injuries piled up and his career came to an abrupt halt, when Peter buried his father and his son within the space of a year, it was Sune who called him then and told him there was a club here that needed help and Peter needed to feel that he could keep something alive. He knows how quiet it gets when hockey tells you you're finished. How quickly you start to miss the ice, the locker room, the guys, the bus trips, the petrol station sandwiches. He knows how as a 17-year-old he would look at the tragic former players in their 40s who used to hang around the rink going on their own achievements in front of an audience that got smaller and smaller each season. The job of GM gave him a chance to live on as part of a team, to build something bigger, something that could outlast him. But with that came responsibility. Make the difficult decisions, live with the pain. He picks up the poster that's fallen to the floor, reads it one last time. A great deal is expected of anyone who's been given a lot. Today he will persuade the man who dragged him to the surface to resign of his own free will. The sponsors and the board don't even want to fire Sunit. They don't want to give him a redundancy payoff. Peter is expected to tell him to leave in silence because that would be the best for the club. Sunit wakes early in the little terraced house where he's always lived on his own. He rarely has visitors, but those who do come are often surprised by how tidy it is. No piles of clutter, newspaper, beer cans and pizza boxes as some people might expect of an old man who has been a bachelor all his life. Neat, tidy, clean. Not even any hockey posters on the walls or trophies on the shelves. Sune has never been very fond of objects. He has his plants in the windows and during the summer recess, he grows flowers in the narrow garden at the back. And the rest of the time? He has hockey. He drinks his instant coffee and washes the cup straight afterwards. He was once asked what the most important requirement was if you wanted to become a successful hockey coach. He replied, being able to drink really bad coffee. All those early mornings and late nights in rinks with scorched coffee pots and cheap office machines, bus trips and isolated roadside cafes, camps and tournaments with school refractories. How could anyone with an expensive espresso machine at home put up with that? You want to be a hockey coach? Get used to not having things other people have. 
free time, a family life, decent coffee. Only the toughest of men can handle this board. Men who can drink terrible coffee, cold if need be. He walks through the town, says hello to almost all the men over 30. At some point over the years, he's coached pretty much every single one of them. The teenagers are a different matter altogether because each year he recognizes fewer and fewer of them. He no longer shares a language with the boys in this town, which makes him as obsolete as a fax machine. He doesn't actually understand how he's expected to believe that children are the future when more and more of them are choosing not to play hockey. How can you be a child and not want to play hockey? He takes the road leading up to the forest and when he reaches the turning to the kennels, he sees Benjamin. The boy stubs his cigarette out too late to avoid being seen, but Sune pretends not to have noticed. When he himself was a player, his teammates used to smoke in the breaks between periods and some of them would drink expert strength beer. Times change, but he isn't sure that the game has actually changed quite as much as some coaches think. He stops by the fence and looks at the dogs rushing about. The long-haired boy stands beside him, uncomprehendingly, but doesn't ask what he's doing here. Tune pats him lightly on his shoulder. Fantastic game on Saturday, Benjamin. Fantastic game. Benji looks down at the ground and nods silently. Sune doesn't know if it is shyness or humility, so the old man points through the fence and adds, You know, when David first became a coach, I always used to say to him that the best hockey players are like the best hunting dogs. They're born egotists. They'll always hunt for their own sake. So you need to nurture them and train them and love them until they start hunting for your sake too, for their teammates' sake. Only then can they become really good, truly great. Benji brushes his fringes from his eyes. Are you thinking of getting one then? I've been thinking about it for years, but I always thought I didn't have any time for a puppy. Benji puts his hand in his jacket pockets and stamps some snow from his shoes. And now? Sune starts laughing. I have a feeling that I might have a bit more free time than I'm used to fairly soon. Benji nods and looks him in the eye for the first time in the conversation. Just because we love David doesn't mean we wouldn't have played for you. I know, the old man replies and pats the boy on the shoulder again. Sunit doesn't say what he's thinking because he isn't sure if he would actually do Benjamin any favours. But the whole time David and Sunit have been arguing about whether a 17-year-old could be ready to play in the A-team, they've really always been in total agreement. Just not about which of the 17-year-olds it should be. Kevin may have the natural talent, but Benjamin has all the rest. Sune has always been more interested in the length of the string than the size of the balloons. Audrey comes out of the house, ruffles his little brother's hair and shakes Sune's hand. I'm Sune, he says. I know who you are, Audrey replies, then immediately asks, What do you think about the next season? Have we got a chance of going up? You need to get a couple of decent skaters into the team shortly. Get rid of the donkeys in the second and third lines. It takes Sune a few moments to realize she's talking about the A-team and not the juniors. He's so used to the juniors' relatives only wanting to talk about the juniors' team that it caught, catches him off guard. There's always a chance, but the puck doesn't just glide, Sune says. It bounces as well, Audrey grins. When Sune looks bemused, Benji explains helpfully. Audrey used to play. In here, she was rough as hell, got more penalties than me. Sune laughs appreciatively. Audrey gestures towards the fence. So what can we do for you? I'd like to buy a dog, Sune says. Audrey holds out her hand and presses his shoulder with a stern face but a friendly smile. I'm afraid I can't let you buy one, Sune, but I can give you one for building up this club and for saving my little brother's life. Benji is breathing through the nose 
and concentrating on the dogs. Sunny's lips quiver gently. When he's composed himself, he manages to say, So which puppy would you recommend for a retired old guy then? That one, Benji says, pointing at one without hesitation. Why? Now it's the boy's turn to pat the old man on the shoulder. Because he's a challenge. David is sitting on his own in the stands in the ring. For once, he's looking up at the roof, not down at the ice. He's got a migraine, is under more pressure than ever, can't remember the last time he slept right through the night. His girlfriend can't even be bothered to try communicating with him at home anymore, seeing as she never gets any response. He's living inside his own head, and in there, he's on the ice 24 hours a day. In spite of that, or perhaps precisely because of it, he can't take his eyes off the worn old banner hanging above his head. Culture value, community. He's due to give an interview to the local papers today. The sponsors have arranged it. David protested, but the club's president just grinned. You want the media to write less about you? Tell your team to play worse. He can already imagine all the questions. What is it that makes Kevin Ardell so good, they'll ask, and David will reply the way he always replies. Talent and training. 10,000 little things that he's repeated 10,000 times. But that isn't really true. He'll never be able to explain it properly to a journalist, but when it really comes down to it, a coach can never create a player like that. Because what makes Kevin the best is his absolute desire to win. Not that he hates losing, but that he can't even begin to conceive of trying to accept not winning. He is merciless. You can't teach someone that. How many hours do these guys put into it? How much did David himself sacrifice? Their whole lives up to the age of 20, 25 are nothing but training, training, training. And what do they get for that if it turns out that they're not good enough? Nothing. No education, no safety net. A player who's as good as Kevin is might turn professional, might earn millions. And the players who are almost so good, they'll end up in the factory just the other side of the trees from the ring. David looks at the banner. As long as his team carries on winning, He'll have a job here, but what if they lose? How many steps away from the factory is he? What can he do apart from hockey? Nothing. He was sitting in this precise spot when he was 22, thinking exactly the same things. Sone was sitting beside him then. David asked about the banner, asked what it meant to Sone, and Sone replied, Community is the fact that we work towards the same goal, that we accept our respective roles in order to reach it. Value is the fact that we trust each other, that we love each other. David thought about that for a long while before asking, What about culture then? Sune looked more serious, choosing his words carefully. In the end, he said, For me, culture is as much about what we encourage as what we actually permit. David asked about what he meant by that. And Sune replied, That most people don't do what we tell them to. They do what we let them get away with. David closes his eyes clears his throat. Then he stands up and walks down towards the ice. Doesn't look up at the roof again. Banners have no meaning this week. Only results. Peter passes the president's office. It's full of people even though it's still morning. Enthusiastic sponsors and board members are abuzz. One of the board members, a man in his 60s who has made money in three different construction companies, is making wild thrusting moments with his hips to illustrate what he thinks Beartown did to their opponents in the semi-finals, then yells. And the whole third period was one big orgasm. They came here thinking they were going to fuck us. They won't be able to put their legs together for weeks. Some of the men laugh, 
some don't if any of them is thinking anything they don't say it because it's only a joke after all and the board members are like a team you take the good with the bad later that day peter will drive to the big supermarket owned by tail he'll sit in his old friend's office and talk rubbish about old matches telling the same jokes they've told since they've met in skating class when they were 5 years old tails will want to offer whiskey peter will decline but before he leaves he'll say have you got any jobs in the warehouse tails will scratch his stubble hesitantly and wonder who for robby i've got a waiting list of 100 people who want warehouse jobs which robby are you talking about peter will stand up and cross tails office to an old photograph hanging on the wall photograph of a hockey team from a small town in the forest who got to be second best in the country first peter will point at himself in the photograph then at tails and then in between the two of them at robby holds we look after each other isn't that what you said tails the bears from bear town tails will look at the photograph and lower his chin in shamefaced agreement i'll check with the personnel two men in their 40s will shake hands in front of a picture of themselves in their 20s the locker room fills with juniors without filling with noise they put their gears on in silence benji doesn't show up everyone notices no one says anything lit makes a half-hearted attempt to break the silence by telling them how he got a blow job from a girl at kevin's party but when he won't say who the girl was it becomes obvious that he's lying everyone knows lit can't keep a secret lit looks as if he wants to say something else but glances towards kevin with an anxious look on his face and says nothing players move out towards the ice lit tapes his pads and tears the loose scraps of tape and throws them on the floor bobo waits until almost all the others have left the locker room before bending over picking them up and dropping them in the garbage he and amit never talk about it they're halfway through the training session before kevin finds a way to end up close enough to amit during a break in the play to be able to talk without being overheard amit is leaning towards on his stick staring at his skates what do you think you saw kevin begins He's not threatening, not hard or comprehending. He's almost whispering. You know what women are like. Amit wishes he knew what he is supposed to say. Wishes he had the courage. But his lips remain sealed. Kevin pats him gently on the back. We're going to make a fucking good team you and me in the A team. He glides away towards the bench when Lars blows his whistle. Amit follows, still staring at his skates but unable to look right at the ice. frightened of seeing his own reflection in it 27 the lump in kira's stomach refuses to give up its grasp she keeps telling herself that there's nothing wrong with maya that she is just a normal teenager that it's just a phase she keeps telling herself to be the cool mom it's not working so when her colleague blunders in through the door kira feels grateful rather than annoyed even though she's got an ocean of work to drown herself in She is relieved to see her standing there shouting that she needs help crushing these bastards. Didn't this client agree to a settlement? Kira asks as she scans the document her colleague tosses onto her desk. That's the problem. They want me to back down like some sort of a coward. And do you know what the badger says? Do as the client says, Kira suggests. Do as the client says. That's what he says. Can you believe that he's in charge? In charge. What is it with men? Have they got a different density from women or what? How come anyone with a dick always rises to the top of every single organization? Okay, but if your client accepts the terms then then that's my job. Go to hell. Isn't my job to look after my client's best interest? Kira's colleague is bouncing up and down with anger. Her heels leaving little marks in the floor of the office. Kira rubs her forehead. 
well yes but maybe not if the client doesn't actually want to my clients have no idea what they want kira looks at the document sees the name of the firm representing the other party and starts to laugh her colleague applied for a job there once and didn't get it okay but the fact that you want to win this particular case that wouldn't be because you just happen to hate this particular firm kira mutters her colleague grabs her over the desk her eyes flashing no i don't just want to win kira i want to crush them i want to give them an existential crisis i want them to walk out of the negotiation room and think that they might like to move to the coast and renovate an old school and open a bed and breakfast i want to hurt those bastards so badly that they start meditating and try to find themselves they'll turn vegetarian and be wearing socks with sandals by the time i'm finished with them kira sighs and laughs okay 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 give me the rest of the file and let's take a look socks with sandals kira i want them to start growing their own tomatoes i want to ruin their self confidence until they stop being lawyers and try to be happy and shit like that instead okay kira promises they close the door they're going to win they always do peter closes the door behind him sits down at his desk stares at the resignation papers that are waiting for Sunil's signature. If Peter had learned one thing about human nature during all his years in hockey, it's that almost everyone regards themselves as a good team player, but very few indeed understand what that really means. It's often said that human beings are pack animals, and the thought is so deeply embedded that hardly anyone is prepared to admit that many of us are actually really rubbish at being in groups, that we can't cooperate. that we are selfish or worst of all that we are the sort of people other people just don't like so we keep repeating i am a good team player until we believe it ourselves without actually being prepared to pay the price peter has always existed on various teams and he knows the sacrifices that being on a team truly demands the team is greater than the individual it's just a cliche for people who don't understand sports for those who do it's a painful truth because it hurts to live in accordance with it submitting to a role you don't want doing a crap job in silence playing on defense instead of getting to score goals and be the star when you can accept the worst aspect of your teammates because you love the collective that's when you are a team player and it was sune who taught him that he stares at the space on the form where sune has to sign his name so absorbed in his thoughts that he jumps when the phone rings when he sees that it's a canadian number he smiles as he answers brian the butcher how are you you old rogue pete his former teammate exclaims at the other end they played in the farm team t- league together brian never made it all the way to the nhl as a player but became a scout instead now he identifies the most talented teenagers for one of the best teams in the league every summer when he hands in his report ahead of the nhl draft he fulfills and crushes lifelong dreams the whole world over so he isn't just calling peter for peter's sake how's the family good good brian how about you oh you know the divorce went through last month shit i'm sorry don't be beat i've got more time for golf now peter laughs half heartedly for a few years over in canada brian was his best friend his wife was close to kira and the children used to play together they still call each other but at some point they started to talk less and less about each other's lives in the end there was only hockey left peter is about to ask are you okay but doesn't have time because brian has already exclaimed how's your boy getting on peter takes a deep breath and nods kevin fantastic really great they won the semi final he has been brilliant so i won't regret it if i tell my people to include him in the draft peter's heart starts to beat faster seriously you're thinking of drafting him If you can promise me that we won't be making a mistake, I trust you, Pete. 
Peter has never been more serious when he replies. I can promise you that you'll be getting a fantastic player. And he is uh, the right sort of guy. Peter nods hard because he knows what that means. Drafting one player instead of another is an immense financial investment for an NHL team. They take absolutely everything into account. It's no longer enough just to be good on the ice. They don't want any unpleasant surprises from the players' private lives either. Peter knows it shouldn't be like that, but those are the rules of the game these days. A few years ago, he heard about a hugely talented youngster who slid down the draft because the scouts found out his dad was an alcoholic with a criminal record. That was enough to scare them off because they had no way of knowing how the teenager would behave if he became a hockey millionaire overnight. So Peter tells the truth, a truth he knows Brian wants to hear. Kevin is the right sort of guy. He gets top grades in school. He comes from a stable family, well brought up. There are definitely no off-ice problems. Brian murmurs happily at the other end. Good, good. And he wears the same number you used to wear, right? Number nine? Yes. I thought they'd have retired that number and hung it from the rafters. Peter grins. They will, only it'll have Kevin's name on it when they do. Brian laughs loudly. They hang up with a promise to be in touch again soon and Peter will go over to Canada with his family that the children will get to see each other again. They both know it will never happen. Amit is gathering up the pucks and cones after practice. Not because anyone's told him to, but because it comes naturally to him and because it gives him a chance to avoid the others. He's expecting the locker room to be empty when he gets there, but is met by Bobo and Kevin. The two 17-year-olds are picking scraps of tape from the floor and throwing them in the garbage. Amit stands in the doorway and is amazed at how easy it is, the bit that comes next. Kevin says it as if it were the most natural thing in the world. Lid has borrowed his dad's car. Let's go to Hed and catch a film. Bobo slaps Amit happily on the back. Didn't I say, you are one of us now? Twenty minutes later, they are sitting in the car. Amit realizes he's sitting in Benji's place but doesn't ask. Lit is boasting about a blowjob again. Kevin asks Bobo to tell some joke and Bobo is so excited to be asked that he snorts coke out of his nose all over the car seat, infuriating Lit. They roar with laughter, talk about the final, about the long bus trip to the city where it's going to be taking place, about girls and parties and how things are going to be when they're all playing in the A-team. Amit slides into conversation, at first reluctantly, then with a wonderful warm feeling of being allowed to belong to something, because that's much easier. Even in here, people recognize them, and they get slaps on the backs and congratulations. After the movie, when Amit thinks they're on the way home, Lit turns off the main road just around the Beartown sign. He stops by the lake. Amit doesn't understand why, until Kevin opens the trunk of the car. They've got beer, light, skates, and hockey sticks in the back. They put their woolen hats down to mark the goals. They play hockey on the lake that night, four boys, and everything feels simple, as if they were children. Amit is amazed at how straightforward it is, staying silent in return for being allowed to join in. Peter throws his rubber ball at the wall again, tries not to look at the resignation forms on the desk, tries not to think about Sune as a person and only as a coach. He knows that that's what Sune would want club first. The board and sponsors can be assholes. Peter knows that better than anyone, but they only want the same as him and Sune. Success for the club. Success demands that we see beyond ourselves. Sometimes Peter has had to keep his mouth shut when the board has demanded new recruitments that he knows are stupid. Then he has to keep his mouth shut all over again when it turns out he was right. Sometimes he has been instructed only to sign seven-month contracts with players so that the club won't have to pay their wages during the summers. 
the players in turn sign on an as unemployed for the rest of the year and are given public assistance and every so often tales provide fake certificates declaring that they've done work placement in his supermarket when they were actually training with the team all summer then when the season starts again they sign new 7 month contracts sometimes you have to skirt around a few moral issues in order to survive financially as a small club peter has had to accept that as a part of the job kira once told him that the club had an unpleasant culture of silence the sort of thing you find among soldiers and criminals but sometimes that's what it takes a culture of silence to foster a culture of winning peter has spent most time than any other coach trying to reduce the packs violence in the stands as well as their menacing hold over the town and that's made him a hated figure in the bear skin but sometimes even he has trouble working out who the worst hooligans in bear town ice hockey club are the ones with the tattoos on their necks or the ones with neck ties he puts the rubber ball down picks up a pen from the neatly organized box in his desk drawer and writes his signature on the line where it says representative of the club on the resignation form when sune signs immediately below it will officially look like he has resigned of his own accord but peter knows what he's done he's just fired his idol lars is standing in david's office hesitating as long as possible before eventually clearing his throat and asking how do you want to punish benji david doesn't look up from his computer screen we won't be punishing him lars nails tap the wood of the door frame with pent up frustration he didn't show up for training session less than a week before the final you won't tolerate that from anyone else david looks up straight at him so abruptly that lars jerks back do you want to win the final of course lars grasps then let this go because i may not be able to guarantee that we are going to win with benji but i can damn well guarantee that we won't win without him lars leaves the room without further protest when david is alone he switches off his computer sighs deeply picks up a large marker pen and goes and gets a puck he writes three large letters on it then he drives out to the cemetery maya is lying in her bed slipping so sleeplessly in and out of consciousness that sometimes she thinks she is hallucinating she has stolen some of her mum's sleeping pills from the bathroom cabinet last night she stood alone with them lined up neatly on the sink and tried to work out how many it would take for her not to have to wake up again now as she blinks up at the ceiling it's as if she's still hoping everything might be a dream as if she could look around the room and realize that she's back in reality that it's friday and nothing has happened yet when awareness hits her it's like having to live through it all again his grip on her throat the bottomless fear the absolute conviction that he was going to kill her again 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 anna is eating dinner with her dad in that very specific silence they've been practicing for 15 years her mom always hid it was the silence that made her leave anna could have gone with her but she lied and said she couldn't imagine living anywhere where there were no trees and the only trees where her mom lives now are planted outside shopping malls as decoration but of course really she stayed because she couldn't abandon her dad even if she doesn't know if that was mostly for his sake or hers they've never talked about it but at least he's drinking less than he did when mom lived here and anna loves both her parents more as a result she offers to take the dogs out that obviously strikes her dad as odd because he usually has to nag her to do it but he says nothing nor does she they live in the old part of hides in one of the houses that was here before the more expensive ones started to build they became bear town aristocracy by association 
She takes a long way around via the illuminated jogging trail that the council is so proud of having built so that the women of the district can exercise in safety. By sheer coincidence, the lights were, of course, first installed next to the heights rather than in front of the forest beyond the hollow. And by another fortune coincidence, the two companies that won the contract from the council were both owned by men who lived in houses right next to the trail. He lets the dogs off their leashes under the lamps, lets them play, trees and animals. They always help. Kevin comes home, passes his parents in the kitchen and living room without having to look them in the eye. He goes upstairs and closes the door to his room and does push-ups until his vision starts to fade. When the house falls silent and the door to his parents' bedroom is closed, he puts on his tracksuit and creeps out. He runs through the forest until he has no energy to think anymore. Anna follows the dogs as they zigzag across the running track. Kevin stops abruptly 15 yards away. At first, she barely reacts, thinking that he must have been startled by the dogs. But then she sees that it's her presence that's made him stop. A couple of days ago, he wouldn't have been able to pick her out of a class photograph even if she were the only person on it. But now he knows who she is. And he looks neither proud nor embarrassed, which are the only two facial expressions he's ever seen on a guy from school after he slept with a girl on the weekend. He's scared. She's never seen a man look so terribly scared. Maya tries to play her guitar, but her fingers are shaking too much. She's sweating under her big grey hoodie, but when her parents ask, she says, she's shaking with fever. She pulls the hood tighter around her neck to hide the bruises, pulls the sleeves halfway down over her head to conceal the blue-black marks on her wrists. She hears the doorbell ring. It's too late to be one of, the, one of Leo's friends. She hears her mum talking outside, relieved and anxious at the same time, the way only her mum can. There's a knock on her bedroom door and Maya pretends to be asleep until she sees who's standing in the doorway. Anna closes the door gently behind her, waits until she hears Kira's footsteps go off towards the kitchen. She is out of breath. She ran all the way here from the heights in a mixture of rage and panic. She sees the marks on Maya's neck and wrists, no matter how her friend tries to hide them. When she finally looks Maya in the eye, Tears find their way into every crease in their skin, every furrow running in streams and dripping from their chins. Anna whispers, I saw him. He was scared. The bastard was scared. What did he do to you? It's as if the event hasn't properly existed for Maya herself until she says the words out loud. And when she does, she's back in that boy's bedroom with its trophies and hockey posters. Sobbing, she fumbles her hand over her hooded top for a blouse button that was never there. She falls apart in Anna's arms, and Anna holds her as if her life depended on it, and wishes with all her being that they could change places with each other. Never again do you find friends like the ones you have when you're 15 years old. still here till the end thank you very much as you might have noticed i suck at sharing and stuff so you can follow me and whatever at everywhere spotify apple itunes google stitcher wherever so that you're aware when the next chapter comes which should be really soon and i hope you have a less sucky day i know it's difficult but one can try. See ya.